This episode of the Naked Preacher podcast is brought to you by Heavenly Breeze Robe Fans. Have you ever been asked to do a wedding outside in the middle of July in your ministerial robe because the photographer thinks it'll look so good in the pictures and you can't say no because the bride's the daughter of your deacon chair? Well, don't sweat, my friend. Just go out and get yourself a Heavenly Breeze robe fan. Simply clip the lightweight wireless rotary fan to the bottom of your robe, direct the pivoting head upward, and enjoy a cool, consistent breeze that's sure to keep you from getting hot under the collar. Your fan can be set for three convenient speeds, spring breeze, autumn gust, or subway blast to help you achieve that Marilyn Monroe look. Heavenly Breeze Robe Fans, all the wedding presiding with none of the wedding perspiring. All right, all right, all right. Greetings, friends, salutations, and welcome to this episode of the Naked Preacher Podcast, the show where preachers get together to reveal who they are outside of the pulpit. Uh, It's a blessing to have you with us today for a special episode, um, you know, a difficult topic as we we are known to address at times on this podcast that encourages pastors to be a a bit more vulnerable and share a bit more of their authentic selves. Uh, We will be talking with Dr. Tony Cartledge on the issue of uh, grief and how preachers grieve. Uh, Dr. Cartledge is a mentor of mine, um, certainly a name that uh, many have heard in the fields of Old Testament scholarship or uh, Baptist life, particularly here in the southeastern United States, and um, he is uh, also someone who has had a a difficult journey through his ministry and had significant grief in his life, and he's been gracious enough to share with us today some of that journey. And so I'm going to go ahead and jump right into the conversation because Dr. Cartledge is such an accomplished person that it takes like three minutes to name all the stuff that he does. So I spend a good bit of time introducing him doing just that. So hopefully you will enjoy uh, hearing from him as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. And and, uh, you can be blessed by this conversation about how pastors, preachers, ministers navigate grief. Well, I want to welcome to the Naked Preacher podcast today, uh, Dr. Tony W. Cartledge, uh, who uh, you pretty much name it in ministry, and he has done it. Um, Currently, he teaches Old Testament writing and preaching, uh, archaeology, and and, uh, ministry courses also at Campbell University Divinity School since 2007, which is is in fact the time that I started at Campbell. So we both started there at, at the same time, and I had the benefit of being in um, several of Dr. Cartledge's classes from Old Testament to uh, ministry of writing to even taking a trip to uh, Israel together, which was uh, quite an experience. Um, he's a graduate from uh, University of Georgia and Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, back in the day. We 
we mm -hmm. might say, and, and then Duke Divinity School, or Duke University, excuse me, where he got his PhD in 1989. Um, you've, uh, he's a prolific writer, so if you've hung around um, theological circles, certainly Baptist circles or Old Testament circles for long enough, you've probably read some of the things that he's written, but uh, some of his, his milestones, I would say, include uh, uh, commentary for Smith and Helwes on uh, First and Second Samuel, and um, he's got um, shorter books on, on Genesis, Samuel, Job, uh, plenty of other books. Uh, he's, he's written um, some books of creative stories, uh, a book that we'll actually reference later about uh, some experiences from his own life. Um, he's also a contributing editor uh, and weekly curriculum writer for the uh, national publication Nurturing Faith Journal uh, and Bible Studies, which is a part of Good Faith Ministries. Uh, so he is one of those people that I look at and I literally have no idea how he does all the things that he does. Um, and he's been around ministry for a while, which isn't to say that he's old because he's not old. But uh, I, I mean, I think he's got another, you know, 40, 50 years left in him the way that he keeps cranking things out. But uh, it's just uh, an honor and a privilege to, to have him on and to share a bit of his um, important time with us this morning. So Dr. Cartledge, thank you for, for being here today. Thank you, Paul. It's a delight to be here. And I'm, I am 69 years old, so I'm getting there. It's, it's a delight to think I might have 40 or 50 years, but uh, not sure it'll be that long, but I'm, I'm not ready to hang it up yet. <laughs> oh, I'm not ready for you too. So, uh, so whatever you're doing, whatever that eating regimen is and exercise that you're doing, keep it up, please. All right. <laughs> so I appreciate you being here today to talk about the topic of uh, preachers grieve. And um, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, just giving us a little idea of your history in ministry, how you ended up in this field, as opposed <laughs> to all the multitude of others you could have been a part of. <laughs> I, um, I ended up in ministry, uh, not intending to really, uh, I started the University of Georgia in 1969, intending to be a pharmacist. Uh, I had worked as a soda jerk in a pharmacy for uh, all through high school and uh, just thought, well, you know, standing back there counting pretty colored pills, you know, understanding the science behind it. I was a science geek. That sounded fun to me. And uh, so I, I went to the University of Georgia and I was in the honors program and uh, but I had gone to a very small high school where nobody knew. Um, uh, we didn't have any kind of calculus. We advanced algebra and trig was the most advanced math course we had. And I got to college and expected me to know calculus. Uh, and um, I worked hard at calculus. Uh, but uh, and I did find till we got to something called imaginary numbers. <laughs> and I, I couldn't imagine them. <laughs> Right. And, and I have a good imagination. And uh, as, a, as a result, uh, the only C I've ever made in my life uh, was in calculus uh, with a 79 average. And he, he wouldn't help me over that last point. And uh, so in my third semester of quantitative and qualitative analysis in chemistry, the professor started writing calculus equations on the board. And I thought, if I've got to do calculus to be a pharmacist, I'll do something else. 
So I, I began to shift. Of course, at the same time, I had begun, I was very active in the Baptist Student Union. I was um, doing a lot of weekend youth revivals and preaching and, and beginning to feel some sense of a call to ministry. Uh, my father said, uh, well, you know, if you don't make it as a preacher, you need to have a backup. So I switched to science education and figured I could always teach high school science. Um, I graduated. Um, I would have gone straight to seminary if the Vietnam War had not ended because my draft number was 19 and I would have been drafted. But uh, it ended the, my last year in school. Uh, and so I, I spent a year uh, teaching. Um, I was the entire science department at a very small high school. Uh, with five different preparations every day. Uh, but along the way, uh, the summer before my senior year in college, uh, while I was home for the summer, I was um, doing some resort ministry. Uh, my Aunt Hazel called and said, uh, Tony, the preacher uh, over here at Loco, that was the name of her church, Loco, Loco Baptist <laughs> Church. Uh, the preacher's sick, and uh, can you come fill in this Sunday? And they, they were a small church, but they had two services on Sunday. And I said, well, yeah, I got two sermons. Uh, so I did. Uh, the next week, she called me again and said, preacher's still sick. Can you come back this week? And so I scrambled up a couple more sermons and, and went back. She called me the third week. And I did it again. And that afternoon, the, the chair of deacons came driving up in my driveway in, a, in an old 60 probably 67 Chevrolet Impala that looked like an army tank. It was, uh, you know, that dark green. And his name was Lennox Martin. And I walked outside and Lennox and I leaned up against his car and he said, Brother Tony, uh, the deacons has had a meeting. And as uh, uh, long as the preacher's sick, we want to uh, want to know if you'll uh, just come be the interim pastor. Um, and, and if he dies... I want you to be the regular pastor. <laughs> that was my first experience with a search committee and uh, consisting of one person. Right. And uh, so he said, uh, he said, we'll pay you $50 a week to be the regular, the interim pastor. Uh, and if you become the regular pastor, we'll pay you $75 a week. Oh, uh, well, the preacher died a couple of months later. He, he had cancer. And so I became the regular pastor midway through my senior year in college. Uh, I stayed there for two years. They never paid me more than $50 a week. So <laughs> sounds I learned. Lo sounds loco to me. I, yeah. I learned early on that you can't always trust a deacon or a search committee. Uh, that, to, uh, that, that's the way the uh, church is going to be. But it was, uh, I didn't go hungry. Uh, I was there for two years. Uh, I ended up, uh, was called to a church on the other side of the state, a full-time church. This is when I really had to decide is ministry what I want to do full-time. Um, so I gave up the um, high school teaching gig and became a full-time pastor at the age of like 22. I don't know what this church was thinking uh, in Hogansville, Georgia. Uh, they called me to be pastor. I stayed there for five years, and I think we accomplished some good things. I learned a lot. Um, I began to question my, my, my youthful fundamentalism, which I had been taught and had not 
had much reason to challenge it. Um, but I began to ask a lot of questions that I couldn't answer and uh, decided, you know, I really should go to seminary. I had uh, done some uh, some correspondence courses back in the day when um, when you would uh, they would send you a package in the mail and you'd uh, you'd read books and you'd fill out answers and write essays and mail them back to them uh, long before online. Uh, and I worked through uh, some Greek like that, but you know Hebrew is uh, something hard to do by yourself. So uh, I, I, I came to seminary at Southeastern back in '79, uh, and it felt like Camelot. Uh, that was a, it was obviously a different uh, school than it is now, uh, but the professors were wonderful. It was a, uh, it was a place of uh, a lot of uh, progressive thinking and uh, I just loved it. I was able to dig into scripture in a way that I never had before uh, to get into Greek and Hebrew and, and um, Understanding critical study of the scriptures um, made a world of difference, and I, so I loved it. I was there for uh, graduated in three years. Uh, I was pastor of a church that whole time, uh, a church in Oxford, and um, the uh, this was my I guess my third experience with the pulpit committee. But this was the first one that uh, asked me. One of the questions was, "Can you play first base?" and <laughs> Because they were, they were big into church league softball. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> and I said, probably not your best person to play first base, uh, but I can usually get on first base. Uh, I, I'm not a big hitter, but I can. I'm left-handed. I can usually bump it down to third baseline uh-huh. and, and beat out the throw. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so, so they called me. So it was uh, that was quite an experience. I was there for five years. So afterward, I taught school again at Oxford Orphanage after I graduated. Um, and um, that was uh, quite an interesting. Uh, I taught junior high math and science. Uh, had this year interlude. I had fully expected when, as soon as I graduated from uh, divinity school, from seminary, that uh, I'd be called to a big First Baptist Church somewhere in Georgia. That was my plan. Of course, and, yes. Uh, and that didn't that didn't work out because my marriage uh, didn't work out, and uh, I wasn't sure where uh, life would take me then. Uh, and so I said, "Well, if I I don't know whether being a Baptist divorced Baptist pastor uh, will have much success, but I, I maybe I can teach." So I applied to Duke and uh, got into the PhD program at Duke and uh, worked on that. But I was. Uh, Still fortunate enough to be called to another church uh, in Boone, where I stayed uh, for uh, for quite a while, from 84 to 88. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Got to teach some at Appalachian in their religion department while I was working on my Ph.D. at Duke. Uh, and uh, enjoyed a fellowship with a church made of uh, about half academics and half mountain people. And that was uh, that was an interesting mix. I you, bet you. it was. I was fortunate enough then in 1988 to be called to Woodhaven Baptist Church uh, near Cary and Apex, uh, which was a mission church and uh, by far the most fun I ever had as a pastor. I was able to be there 10 years uh, as we were, you know, fortuitously in a, in a suburban area of rapid growth. Uh, we would have had to do something wrong not to attract new people. And uh, so over 
over those 10 years, we were uh, able to grow quite a bit, build a couple of uh, buildings and uh, really get established in a, in a, in a good way. And I, I was really enjoying that. That was a lot of fun. I, I, as you do, Paul, I, I enjoy using creativity and this was a, a setting where people appreciated it. Mm-hmm. And so that, that went over well, whether I was telling stories or singing or doing something dramatic, um, it, it went over well. And I could have been there, stayed there for a while, although as the church grew, uh, I grew a little dissatisfied because I enjoyed being a, a shepherd, but I didn't want to be a rancher. Mm. And um, the as the staff grew and it became harder to know everybody personally, I was mm-hmm. getting a little frustrated. And about that time, uh, I was in, in, invited to become uh, editor of the uh, Biblical Recorder, the Baptist State Paper. And uh, primarily felt led to that because it was a time, this was in the, uh, this was 1998, um, at a time when in the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina, what we called moderates and conservatives, uh, or when could say progressives and fundamentalists, but we, we, we tried to meet closer to the middle, moderates mm-hmm, and conservatives mm-hmm. were still really trying to work together. And be um, and, and be faithful together and cooperate. And um, I was encouraged that perhaps with my background and my writing ability that I could be a positive force in that. And I really tried that for nine years. Worked hard at it, and uh, obviously others were working hard at it uh, on both sides. Uh, but ultimately, um, the Baptist State Convention went the way of the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of uh, the uh, more fundamentalist for, uh, you know, people taking control. And, you know, once you get control, you can do what you want. And uh, they began changing the board of uh, directors for the recorder. And I, I recognized that uh, what I was doing was not what they would want me to do. And um mm-hmm. Fortunately, about that time, uh, Mike Cogdell invited me to come teach Old Testament at uh, at Campbell Divinity School, or at least invited me to apply. Right. And uh, so I did. And I've, so I've been at Campbell ever since 2007. Um, and uh, at the same time, I picked up a contributing editor job with Baptist Today, uh, which uh, has since become Nurturing Faith Journal. Mm-hmm which has uh, since merged with Ethics Daily to become Good Faith Media. And so I'm now contributing editor for Good Faith Media. I write a weekly column. And since 2011, I've been writing a weekly uh, curriculum piece uh, for Nurturing Faith Journal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that keeps him pretty busy. But that's, yeah. uh, that's yeah. sort of a rundown. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised that you haven't covered the whole Bible at this point because I mean those that 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 weekly curriculum I know a lot of groups use it as Sunday school and uh, you know for for that material and um, it's it's thorough I I honestly don't know how you do all of the things that you do well we've we've covered the whole lectionary uh, okay. the uh, the editor wanted it to be lectionary based and so we've we've done that um, and so we've covered the gamut of the Bible pretty much, although it's somewhat limited to the lectionary. Uh, in fact, in January of this year, Paul, uh, we published the 500th lesson. So 
Wow. I'm up to 520 or 30 lessons now. I'm, I just finished the August lessons. Wow. And uh, we are hoping uh, sometime over the next year to begin collecting those and put them into maybe a 12 volume uh, series that would be something like Feasting on the Word that would yeah. be a lectionary resource for preachers and teachers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, making those available in book form and, or at least in digital form. Well, that's, so, that's another quite, project. That's quite a journey starting out as a, a, a senior who had two sermons uh, that, that he could preach for a sick, a sick minister to, uh, <laughs> to uh, a professor, PhD, got 500 something uh, Bible study lessons that you can <laughs> compile, plus not to mention the commentaries that you've written and all of the uh, other Bible studies and books and, and all that stuff. So um, definitely a long and storied career in ministry. And uh one of the things that's always meant the most to me in, in your ministry, I got to know you um, when you came to uh, First Baptist uh, Smithfield, which is, is my home church when I was, uh, I was probably youth aged at that point, fifth or sixth grade, something like that. And uh, I remember you talking about a significant loss that mm -hmm. uh, you experienced in, in your life and in your ministry. And that's, uh, primarily what I would love to talk with you about today. I've, I've admired always how you've, you know, that hasn't been a hidden part of your life. It's, it's mm -hmm. something that helped form you as a person and, and um, therefore it's, it's part of your, your story and, and you're an authentic uh, minister and authentic person. And so you, you own that. And um, I'd, I'd love if you could share with us uh, some of that, that story, the, the loss that you, uh, experience and has been so formative in your life and ministry. Mm -hmm. Sure. The, um, what you have in mind is uh, that in 1984, uh, our daughter Bethany, who is, uh, was seven years old at the time, uh, died as a result of a wreck that was caused by a drunk driver. Hmm. I, I try to be more charitable with my language um, I used to just say she was killed by a drunk driver, uh, but I don't want to assign intent at all. Sure. Yeah. Uh, a young man who, who had a problem with drinking, um, worked an overnight shift, uh, went to a bar, drank beer all morning, and then tried to drive home. And uh, he didn't make it. He has just uh, happened in South Carolina. Bethany had been visiting uh, my parents. Uh, before starting back to school early in uh, January. And uh, I went down to pick her up. She was in a year round track at the time. That's uh, why it was, uh, it was off. I went down to pick her up and on a Monday morning, we were driving back um, uh, not far from Hartsville, South Carolina, uh, coming up highway one. Uh, when, you know, I looked up and saw a pickup truck coming around the curb in my lane. And that's, that's something I hope nobody else ever sees, you know, and uh, I tried to do my best to avoid him. He, I could see that he was running out, going to run off the road. And uh, so uh, I maintained a relatively steady course, but once he ran off the road, it, it woke him up. He'd gone to sleep and he jerked the wheel and drove right straight back into the drive passenger side door where Bethany was sitting and uh, she was killed instantly. 
uh, which uh, is a is a blessing, I suppose. Um, and uh, I woke up; uh, it, it knocked me out. Uh, and uh, I, I woke up. I don't know how long later, a minute later, or something like that. Uh, kind of dragged myself back to consciousness. Uh, the the motor was still running in the car because it broke the transaxle loose, I, and I couldn't turn it off. Uh, it would kept dieseling. My my right arm was just was useless. It was all broken up and just hanging down. Um, and I I reached around to to check on Bethany, and her seat had been pushed into the back seat, and uh, she was lying back. Uh, not moving. Her face was turned away from me, which, uh, which is a mercy. Um, and uh, her tongue was uh, sort of sticking out between her teeth and it was, and it was blue. And I, I had a pretty good idea that uh, she was dead. I could not find a pulse. And um, immediately I just started crying out. Yeah. Oh God, Bethany. Oh God, Bethany. Pretty soon, um, another another driver stopped and uh, came over and um, insisted that I get out of the car. After I saw I saw him look into the passenger side of the car where Bethany was, the windows had been knocked out, and he could see the side of her face that I could not see, which had been crushed by the truck's bumper. Uh, and uh, he started praying, and I thought that. That was obviously something that got my attention. Uh, and then he came around and insisted that I, that I needed to get out of the car. And uh, so he opened the door and I was able to walk. So he, he got me out of the car and laid me down in the grass on the side of the road. And then I remember he, he raised the hood of the car, took off the uh, air breather and threw dirt in the carburetor until it choked down. <laughs> so the car would quit running. And, um, Shortly after that, the uh, ambulance arrived and uh, they were they were working on me. And I kept saying, why aren't you working on Bethany? And mm -hmm. it took a while for them to, you know, to, to tell me for sure that, that she was dead. So that was a uh, obviously a traumatic experience um, uh, in, in a heartbeat. You know, that yeah. precious daughter was gone. She was our only child uh, uh, at the time. and. Um, you know, just left an immediate hole for me, um, partly since I was knocked unconscious and I was waking up, I couldn't remember everything. And so I immediately started beating myself up uh, for not having been able to avoid the, uh, the, the wreck. You know, I felt like it was my fault. Maybe I'd gone to sleep. Since since I woke up from being unconscious, you know, I thought right. it sure. could have been, maybe I was the one who'd gone, gone to sleep. And um, so I, you know, was having to deal with a lot of guilt as well as everything else. Um, and I had seven broken ribs in addition to my uh, right arm being mangled in a punctured lung and uh, concussion. So, you know, I wasn't feeling great either. Uh, so I ended up, um, uh, they took me to a hospital in Hartsville, um, brought Bethany to the morgue there, although they, they, they never, they never said a word to me about, about Bethany, you know, and uh, I remember being upset later that we weren't given an opportunity to donate any of her organs or anything. 
And um, my guess is since she died instantly, uh, they would not have been able to, to, to use anything other than maybe corneas from her eyes. But uh, we were, um, I was there overnight. Uh, the next day, uh, they life flighted me uh, to uh, Wake Med to the trauma center in Raleigh, and I was able to do that, so, uh, or to get there, and had a, you know, recovery for a couple of weeks there, and then came home, and then went back to Rex to have my arm put back together, and um, the church was amazing. Um, This is when you were at Woodhaven. This is when I was at Woodhaven. They stepped up. They said, you don't worry about anything. You take care of yourself. Uh, they found somebody to preach. And, uh, so for eight weeks, I was, I was out just trying to recover mm. and, um, learning from the inside out what, uh, what good grief ministry is and what good grief ministry is not Yeah, I bet. As, as people, um, you know, sought to comfort us. It was, uh, it was, it was quite an experience to, um, to, to have that traumatic loss. Uh, and to um, and then to try to deal with it and deal with all the, the faith questions that it raises. And uh, so that was the the the, the main experience um, that that led us uh, led to opportunities to speak and, and talk about that. Yeah. Um, thank you for for sharing that. I, I, I've always. Um, felt close to your story because um, I believe you said that that was in January of 94, right? And, and Bethany was, yeah. um, she was seven. Yeah. I think I may have misspoken and said 84, but it was 94. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's what I thought because she, uh, she was born in 80, 86, um, 86. Okay. I was born in 85. And um, so I always remember that cl- sharing that closeness and age mm-hmm. with her. Um, and you, before we move on, you just, th- there's a book that um, you wrote with, with um, your wife at the time, Jan, um, mm-hmm. called a whole new world life after Bethany. Mm-hmm. Um, and which I just think is, is uh, an amazing uh, way of, of, I can assume it was an amazing way of helping you all to process some of that grief. Uh, but you say in the preface that Bethany was a child of faith. She looked forward to church time, learned eagerly from her teachers, sang joyfully in the children's choir, and proudly rang a little bell in the children's handbell choir. At the conclusion of worship, uh, when her pastor father stepped from the pulpit to walk up the aisle during the benediction, Bethany would often slip out, wrap her arms around one leg, and walk in, into the vestibule. She asked good questions and believed in the goodness of God and the love of Jesus as only a child can. Um, yeah. And I know that there, there are a lot of ministers and peers, colleagues who listen to this podcast who can really easily put themselves in that same place. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've got a uh, eight-year-old and a five-year-old, uh, both of whom you know, have come down during that, uh, benediction and hug that leg and, mm-hmm. um, and that innocence of, of just loving Jesus and loving, loving God with such purity. Um, 
um, you know, I think it's very easy for a lot of us to imagine the Bethany's in, in our lives and the sweet spirit that she was. So, um, I just appreciate you, you sharing that and, and, uh, letting us get a little window into who she, who she was. Um, and you talked about, um, about, you know, learning, learning about good grief and, uh, what it was, what it is, what it isn't. Um, another thing that you, uh, write in, in this book, uh, is a letter. Uh, you talk about your time in the hospital, um, recovering and, uh, the struggle that you were facing and, um, and that you, you felt this urge to write, uh, mm-hmm. which knowing you, I could definitely believe and, yeah. um, that it was your right hand that was injured. But since you, uh, have the wonderful blessing of being a left-hander as, as, uh, I do as well, <laughs> um, you were able to get your dad to hold a a pen, uh, I mean, a, a notepad, and you could write this. And I just think this is absolutely beautiful. And I want to read it so people can hear it. And it can jump us maybe into that conversation of good grief um, versus um, maybe not so good grief. And uh, you wrote this, I think, for the folks at church, right, primarily? Uh, I wrote it. Uh, I asked that it, I knew that I would not be able to attend her funeral. Mm, yeah. Um, I would, wow. I would, I was confident I'd still be in the hospital and I wrote it and asked that it be read at, at the funeral since gotcha. I wouldn't able to be there. Sure. Well, you write, it is important for me to say this to you. Thank you for allowing me. Let no one say that this tragic death is the will of God under any circumstance. Let no one think for a minute that this child's heavenly parent needed her more than her earthly parents or that the angelic chorus needed her sweet voice more than our own children's choir. Bethany's death is not the result of God's divine or beneficent choice. Rather, it comes at the end of the cumulative bad choices made by a man who was also created as a child of God. He did not set out to kill our daughter, but it is his behavior and not God's that brings us to this place. I do not ask why this happened nor do I ever expect to look back and understand some hidden purpose of God and Bethany's death. There is no why for this tragedy. There's only a what, the hard reality that my precious little daughter is gone from this earth. I have no fear for her future. Bethany's faith was as pure as the snow she longed for, and God's promises are as sure as the rising sun. Now she plays with her grandfather Rush and Grandpa Tilly, and we are left with only her toys and the indelible memories of a childhood bright with promise and filled with love. These memories will never die. Bethany will live always in our hearts, and God and you will see us through. We will never be the same again. What We will be what we can. Be patient with us as we heal, for it may take a lifetime. Be prayerful for us, but most of all, be careful what choices you make for good and not for evil. And when I read that, I just thought that was such, such a beautiful and such a powerful and, you know, as is the theme of this podcast so often, such a vulnerable um, statement to make from a preacher to say things like, don't, I don't need to hear that 
Um, God had a purpose behind this. I don't need to hear that God needed another angel or another voice in the choir, um, which are often a lot of the platitudes that are spoken at times like this. And I can only imagine that, that preachers who experience grief like this would, would hear them more. Um, uh, just would love for you to talk more about your, your thoughts and, and your wisdom. And I think foresight in, in mentioning that and, and what the experience of having a church help you to grieve was like, you know, the good grief you experienced and, and maybe some that you didn't. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That, um, writing that letter was, um, um, it was just something I, I had to do. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a writer. And, uh, when sometimes when I'm feeling something, the best way for me to deal with it is to write, write about it. This, this happened about two o'clock in the morning. Um, I obviously had not been to sleep and, um, back in those days, I remember this is pre-computer and pre uh, blackberries and anything else like that. I, I carried a, a day timer, a little notebook with, uh, and it had uh, some empty pages in the back for notes. And, and that's what I got my dad to hold up. And uh, so that I could, could, could write. And I was flat on my back, you know, facing it. It was, it was not an easy thing uh, just to be able to, to write the words, but I'd, I didn't think that anyone speaking at the funeral would say anything like everything happens for a reason or, uh, you know, any of that. But I wanted, I, I wasn't so sure that they would say, don't believe that. <laughs> so I wanted that said mm. uh, at her funeral. And I guess I was enough of a pastor to feel like I, I, I wanted to have a word. Uh, at the funeral and the um, one of the interesting things for me is that when I finished that letter and I and I it was done and I'd said what I wanted to say that was the first time I was able to cry Hmm. I think I had uh, you know obviously been in shock for a good part of the day uh, this happened at 11 o'clock in the morning. And so this was probably 13, 14 hours later. I'd been, been in shock. I was, uh, I was highly disappointed that they didn't rush me to surgery when we got to the hospital. Cause I, I knew my arm was in multiple pieces, the bones. And I just assumed they would take me directly to surgery and knock me out. But that was what I wanted. I, you know, I was feeling so miserable, just put me to sleep. Uh, but they didn't. And uh, they, I don't, I don't fully understand uh, orthopedics, but it was two weeks later before they even touched my arm. Hmm. Uh, in the meantime, I could pull it into place and straighten it out and then it would pop back. I could pull it back. Into place. I could play with it. It was like having two elbows. Uh, uh, I, although it hurt a little bit to do that, I would say. I can imagine. <laughs> and at first it was the size of a basketball. It was so swelled up, but uh, as I said, I, I'm sure I was in shock. Uh, they gave me a whole lot of pain medicine. And uh, so I was sort of probably sort of numb in some ways. But uh, once I got those words out, th- then I was able to, to, to just 
cry and, and, and let it out and, and, and let the grief wash over me. So it began to change from, from shock uh, to grief in that, in that sense. And um, so it was uh, quite a, quite an experience. I was, I was glad that, that, uh, that I was able to do that. The, the letter seems to have been well received. People spoke well of it. I, I remember it, uh, Gene Puckett even put it in the biblical recorder. Mm. At the time. Um, and then uh, our church, as I mentioned, was uh, very, uh, very supportive, very encouraging. It's not to say that there weren't some who didn't bring us cards uh, about another angel in heaven and another flower sure. in heaven's garden. Um, you know, people want to say something. They want, it's natural. We want to explain things. We, mm-hmm. we want to make people feel better. And sometimes we just don't uh, recognize that sometimes our efforts uh, do more harm than, than good in, in that sense. Uh, I remember uh, at, some, at some point, uh, uh, we wrote a little article for a WMU magazine um, about um, helpful ways to, to minister to people mm-hmm. who are grieving. Uh, and uh, it was even alliterated to em- emphasize that the most important thing is is your presence. Uh, it's not the words you say, you know. When there's nothing to say, you don't say anything. Job's friends were really helpful in chapter two. They came and sat with him for seven days and didn't say a word. That's the best thing they ever did for him. Yeah. And then once he started com- complaining, then they jumped all over him. Uh, but when they were just there, that was, uh, presence is so important and, uh, patience to be patient with people, not, we, we move through grief at different speeds. Some people, um, seem to be able to move on quickly and others struggle for a long time. Uh, and it's important to be patient with people as they grieve. And if we're visiting someone who's grieving, it's also helpful to, to be conscious of our purpose. Are, are we doing it to make ourselves feel better? Are we doing it to keep our reputation up because we think they'll be mad if we don't come? Are we truly doing it out of love and concern for that person? And so that when we are there, uh, is our purpose just to be a supportive presence for them? Uh, and I think that... Um, I just think that's very important, the, the presence thing. Um, as I mentioned, the church told me to take as much time off as I, as I needed. And I was out for eight weeks um, out of the pulpit, but I was, I was anxious to get back. Um, and the uh, first Sunday back, um, the, uh, uh, I did a sermon, uh, the title was uh, Lessons of the Heart. Mm. And uh, I talked about how some things uh, you can only learn from experience. Um, and we certainly had learned a lot about uh, pain and loss. And uh, I'd learned an awful lot about hospitals and uh, different kinds of medications and uh, unwanted visitors showing up at one o'clock in the morning and uh, <laughs> things, things like that. Um, 
so, um, you know, a lot of things, you know, like that I learned by experience, but also, um, I think, uh, you know, a good sermon's supposed to have three points, right? Well, when I teach preaching, my, my, you know, I say, how many points should a sermon have? And the answer is at least one. <laughs> good you know, one one yeah. can be good. Yeah. Um, but here I talked about uh, three different things. The th- three things that, that I had been thinking mainly about, things that I had learned that um, uh, I, I tried to get them across as lessons that um, things that I had known in my head, I'd heard about, I'd read about, mm. but I hadn't experienced in my heart. Yeah. So it was kind of things that that I, I felt like I knew in a different level than I had known before. And uh, one of them is uh, the first one I mentioned was that sin really does have consequences mm. and not just for the sinner. Mm. Um, often, uh, you know, in, in this case, obviously the, you know, the, the, the young man's drinking, um, led to Bethany's death, you know, the wages of sin is death, but not always for the sin. Mm. Um, and it's, that was a reminder of personal responsibility that we all, uh, have a responsibility to other people, uh, to remember that sin does have consequences, not that we expect God to, you know, slam us as the Deuteronomist did uh, if we sin, but uh, wrongful behavior is going to, is going to cause something to somebody. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, uh, in many cases, in many cases, it's not the one, the, the, the center who's, who's, who suffers the most. If, you know, often it's a wife who's abused or children who are neglected are the people who suffer the most because of somebody else's uh, sin and bad choices. So that was the first thing I talked about, just a, re- a reminder that, you know, bad choices do have consequences and not always for the one making the choice. Um, a second thing that I really was hanging on to was the centrality of hope. Hmm. Um I uh, realized after Bethany died that if I had not been taught uh, the concept of heaven, I would have made it up. Hmm. Uh, There's something about us that we just cannot bear the thought of um, someone just ceasing to exist. Hmm. Uh, The the way I put it at the time, I just couldn't imagine Bethany's light had gone out of the universe. Hmm. And so for a while, I was just obsessed with heaven. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wrote poems, uh, you know, I wish, I hope they have hot dogs in heaven, you know, and ponies and all the things that Bethany uh, loved so much. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope she could, could, could eat cheese sticks and, and fish and French fries in, in, in heaven. Um, and um, that was a hope, you know, um, and hope is something you cling to. Um, I'm, I'm less likely to focus on that now, uh, than I did then, but in the immediate aftermath of the loss, that was, uh, that was all I could think about when I would think of Bethany, all I could think was, boy, I, I hope, yeah. I really hope she's 
in really in a better place and really having fun. If anybody was innocent and deserved to be in heaven, it, you know, it would have been her, but uh, sure. uh, any child uh, and uh, hope really became important to me. And, and it, that has continued to be, to be the case. You know, the older I get in some ways, uh, the less confident I get in many of the things that I thought I knew when I was younger. Uh, in some ways, I've gone from saying I know to I believe to I hope. Uh, but uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. For me, um, hope to the point of action uh, is basically another way of saying faith. Yeah. You, you hope it. You know, I, I once said faith is hope with feet on it. Mm. Uh, hope, hope that keeps you committed enough to keep you moving forward. Uh, you know, is it, is pretty much equivalent to faith. You know, even even if you can't be sure, if you can't be certain, you can still hope. And that hope is really, you know, what what kept us going. If if I didn't have some sort of hope. Uh, I can imagine the working through the grief process would have been much more difficult. Um, and the, the third thing, uh, really, when I look back, is related to the to the first was uh, just the ultimate importance uh, of human choices. Hmm. Um, we make a lot of choices. You know, love is a choice. Uh, it's not just feeling. Um, whether how we relate to others is a choice. Uh, how we behave is a choice. And even in dealing with grief, you know, we make choices about, you know, am I going to work with this? Am, am I going to deal with it? Am I going to do my best to move on? Or am I going to wallow in it? Hmm. Those, those are choices. They may not be self-conscious choices. Right. Um, you know, for those who end up, and we've probably all known somebody who seemed to wallow in self-pity for years uh, and not be able to get past it, you know, perhaps there's just something going on with them that it makes it really hard for them to make a different choice. Um, but, um, you know, we make choices every day and those choices are important and we need to give, we need to give thought to them and do the best we can to make wise choices. I don't know if I, how much I've uh, responded to the question you asked. No, no, that's that's beautiful. I, how did uh, it sounds like your congregation responded well to you just um, dealing with this authentically and sharing with them the things that were going through your mind and things that you were processing. It doesn't it doesn't seem, in other words, like you had to put up a front of. I've got it all together in, in this moment. Um, is, would that be accurate? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I know this is something that's Im important to you uh, is that I was, I was able and willing to be vulnerable and to a degree transparent in the pulpit to confess my, my own struggles. Mm -hmm. um, I think, um, I think, many, I think preachers tend to do that, whether they're aware of it or not. Mm -hmm. um, I have a good friend that uh, always said, uh, let me hear somebody preach three times in a row, and I can tell you what's going on in his life. 
because those things will come out whether we uh, are aware of them or not. And sometimes, uh, you know, folks will, if you, if you hear them hard down condemning something, it's often something that they're struggling mm-hmm. with, not That's necessarily right. yeah. something, something else. Some of the most uh, uh, homophobic people, uh, I think, are probably people who may struggle with it themselves and they're, and they're mm-hmm. trying to deal with their, with their own issues uh, by, by condemning somebody else for, you know, as, as one example. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that was probably the only sermon where the whole sermon was clearly built around that experience. But uh, there were, you can be assured, there were many more uh, illustrations and thoughts that were related to, you know, things I had learned or questions I had um, that that came out of that experience and can continue to do so for the for the next four four years uh, yeah. that I was there. Um. Well, as as you've gone on in ministry since that that point, and I know your your settings have changed, but you've you've continued to to minister in every setting that you've been a part of. How has your experience with tragedy influenced your ability to minister to those in similar situations? Well, I think it certainly made me a lot more sensitive um, to other people uh, in their in their times of grief. Um, it's enabled me to be uh, more of a uh, calming presence, I think, because um, I've I've been there, I've I've been through it. Um, I know that there is a, that you can come through the other side, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I think in some ways that allows me to be calmer, but also hopefully provide some assurance to the um, to the person that I'm that I'm ministering to. Um, and it's, you know, it continues to show up some uh, in writing and things like that as well. The, the book that you mentioned, we did that 10 years after Bethany died and we, we just felt like we'd, we'd learned a lot of things in 10 years and it would, we thought it would be worth sharing hmm. some of those and, and that maybe it would be helpful to somebody else. And, to this day, I probably get more feedback from that, from people saying that that the book made a difference to them than any of the other dozen or so books, you know, that I've written. Um, and, you know, it uh, recently it it came out in uh, in some more enjoyable uh, as well as meaningful ways uh, before COVID hit. Uh, you know. I, I, I had a chance to go around and, and um, do this presentation about Mr. Rogers, as, as you allowed me to do mm-hmm. at Winter Park. Uh, and, you know, my friendship with Fred Rogers came, was a direct result of uh, the working through the grief experience uh, after Bethany died. One of the things I did to try to help deal with, you know, the way I was feeling was to to write thank you notes to people who had, I thought had been important in her life and made a difference. And that that was therapeutic for me. Uh, As I said, writing does that for me. Other people might want to make phone calls, but uh, then I was, uh, so I I wrote letters, uh, thank you notes to people I thought were important to her and including one uh, to Mr. Rogers, thanking him for being part of her neighborhood because she and I enjoyed watching his program together so much. 
And uh, that led to him, you know, calling on the telephone. And uh, we ultimately were able to visit and, and become friends and sort of pen pals. Uh, that was certainly not, that was not unusual for him. He, he stayed in contact with a lot of people. He was just an amazing man. And, uh, but that ex experience enabled me to, you know, develop that presentation of going to churches and sort of, uh, putting on a Mr. Rogers persona and, um, you know, sharing some lessons that I think, um, Mr. Rogers, uh, would want us to think about in these days. Yeah. Amen. Well, Dr. Carlage, I appreciate so much you, you being on and um, just coming and, and sharing some of your, your story. There's, a, um, there's definitely a reason when I was working on my D-Men at Campbell, uh, and I knew that I wanted to be in the area of pastoral you know, vulnerability, um, there was a reason that, that I wanted you to be my, my supervisor, the one who helped guide me through that is because I've, I've just always admired the way that you've, um, you've not hidden your life from, uh, from the, the people that God has, has put in your path. And, um, it's, it's affected me in such a positive way. And, and I'm just, I'm just one, one face and one voice among the, the thousands that you've been able to reach. So, uh, thank you for that, and, and thanks for continuing to do it today, and and sharing a little bit about what it's like uh, when when preachers grieve. That's right. Uh, thank you, Paul. I appreciate you, uh, your continued friendship, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be on your podcast. You got it. Well, there you go, friends, uh, and thank you again so much to Dr. Tony Cartledge for. Um, being such a gracious steward of his story and um, letting us know uh, of Bethany and the wonderful life uh, that was hers and for opening up about uh, his journey of, of grief in response to losing her. Um, hopefully it can encourage uh, any ministers or other leaders, individuals out there who might be listening to um, not not be shy with their own stories of grief and loss because it's something that's quite common to the human experience and uh, like anything else we are not made to go through it alone so thanks dr cartledge for reminding us of that and inspiring us to share our own stories if you're interested in learning more about uh, tony cartledge or looking into some of his books i will include links in the show notes so you can check him out so be sure to do that if you get the chance and uh until next time preachers be real.